17. I'm Dime Collector, and I'm going to be your host today, and we've got a special guest with us all the way from Finland on the other side of the world. We've got a guy who's a big fan of Popper. You may have heard him on the Popper to the People podcast. This is Maddie. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. I'm here uh, far north. Awesome. So uh, for our listeners, there are a few people that may have not may not be familiar with you. Do you want to give them some background, maybe on you know your your history as a Magic player? I started Magic uh, at mid nineties, I guess. Uh, my cousins were playing it, and I was following them. So I bought few packs. I think it was Mirage back then, or something like that. And then I played the computer game, like the Do you know the Chandelier? I've heard of it, but I've never played it myself. Yeah, I played a lot of that. <laughs> it was actually a fun game. And from there, I took a long break and sell my collection. And then I came back uh, around maybe a bit before Charge of Alara was announced or, or printed. And have been playing since then. Uh, first, I played lots of Cube. I had my own unpowered Cube. And uh, I played some Legacy, and then when I moved cities and I didn't have that many friends to play with, I moved to MTGO and started to play Popper. Very cool, and it sounds like you're playing a bit of EDH these days as well, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, sometimes, because uh, <laughs> I keep almost all the cards that I... I also do a lot of limited, like drafts, and I keep all the cards, so I just... Try to make these funny brews. I'm a, I'm a brewer kind of a guy, and EDH is, is, uh, it's just, it's fun to brew decks for EDH. So we're not actually talking about EDH. We are going to be talking about Popper today, though, which is a topic I love to talk about, and I'm sure you do as well. Today's episode is going to be on mulligans and sideboarding in Popper. And this is going to be more of a general strategy based episode rather than focusing in on one particular deck or strategy. So we have a, a lot of things to talk about with this, and we're going to start by talking about mulligans, which is something every Magic player needs to be familiar with. And the first thing I want to talk about is why is mulliganing important? Basically, this is something that affects every game of Magic, but it's not a decision you actually make within the game. It's a decision you make before the game even starts. And I think it's very important because uh, mulligans not only are going to impact the game, but it's going to impact your win percentage as a player. If you're able to make better mulligan decisions, you're going to be able to win more games of Magic ultimately. One of the things about mulliganing is that you can extrapolate these fundamental concepts that have to do with mulliganing, and you can apply them to different aspects of the game. And I think it'll make you a more well-rounded player. So that's why mulligans are important to me. Uh, Maddie, do you find that mulligans are important in uh, this game we play? Yeah, it's mulliganing. Mulligans are a really important part of the game. And, and the reason why they are so important is, is purely math-related. Let's say you play three games in every match. And you must win two games with three of those hands. You have to keep two hands that are capable of winning. And mulligans help you to do that. Uh, the first thing I do want to talk about when we deal with mulligans is you really have to take into account the deck you're playing. And more specifically, you want to be able to determine your deck's optimal plan. And what I mean by that is you really want to figure out 
in an ideal set of circumstances, what does your deck do in a given game of Magic? So, for instance, if you're playing an aggressive deck, you're typically going to be putting pressure on the board in the early turns. Your strength is going to be in the early game, and you're going to be attacking the opponent's life total and trying to get them low enough that their number of options are extremely limited for them to get out of the tricky predicament that you're putting them in with your aggressive game plan. Now, on the opposite side of the table, something like a control deck, they're usually going to be stronger in the later game. And in the early turns, they're going to be trying to essentially stabilize, at least against an aggressive deck, by countering their spells, removing their creatures, drawing some cards. So they're really establishing their mana base and establishing their cards in hand so that they can not only stabilize their life total, but ultimately get to a late game or an end game where they can completely take over. It, it doesn't matter if, you're, if your plan is to go aggro or combo or a control. You, you need to look at your hand and see how, how does, what is my game plan and how does my first few turns look like and does this hand allow me to, to do what I want, to do the thing that I'm supposed to do to win the match. And so once you have a strong grasp of what your deck is doing and what your plan is, it's really going to help you to determine whether or not that opening hand is going to contribute to your game plan or not. And that will help you decide whether you are going to mulligan or you're going to keep. Uh, going hand in hand with that is determining what your opponent's game plan is. So this takes into account uh, the possibility that you actually know what kind of deck your opponent's playing. And there's a couple ways you can do that. A, you can be familiar with who your opponent is and know what kind of deck they tend to play. And um, as also was mentioned in a previous episode, you have so many resources. You have so many websites and, and the internet where you can now look up people's deck lists and you can look card by card what people are playing in these daily events. It's going to factor in a lot uh, depending on what the matchup looks like based on your experience and what kind of archetype they're playing. If you're a control deck, once again, and you have an opening hand that doesn't really interact on the early turns, but you know that your opponent is a fast, uh, maybe infect or combo deck, you're going to be a lot more skeptical about keeping that opening hand, I, I think, more often than not. Yeah, knowing knowing the meta game is important when thinking of, of mulligans. If you know that lots of players are playing, uh, let's say, Affinity at the moment, you want to keep that in mind. You want to know how your deck is going, how that, how this hand is playing against Affinity, for example. So, yeah, just keep in mind what's the also the opponent's game plan. How are you gonna prevent them from winning? Uh, so the next thing I want to talk about here is. Odds and probability, which you kind of hinted at a little bit earlier, and how they factor in to mulligans. Now, uh, I'm going to preface this by saying I don't actually use probability or odds really all that much. I don't go too in-depth uh, with these, but I think it is important to have a general, at least a general sense of how odds and probability factor in to mulligans. And the first way that they do factor in is letting you know what your chances are of drawing certain cards. So, for instance, if you're going to keep a, a hand, or if you're thinking about keeping a hand that has maybe one or two lands, but it doesn't really have sufficient amount of lands 
to supplement the, the rest of the cards in your hand, let's say. So let's say you have a one land hand that you're thinking about keeping. And for instance, let's say you're on the draw. For your game plan to really progress, you're going to need to draw a land by your second turn so you can make that land draw. Now being on the draw gives you two draw steps to hit that land, and you know that you have one land in hand based on how many uh, lands you're actually playing in your deck. Let's say you're playing 24. You know that you have 23 other lands that you can potentially draw into within those two draw steps. Now, I mean, this gets more complicated if you need to draw a certain kind of land, if you need to draw something that comes into play untapped or produces a certain color, then the numbers are going to change a bit. But just having a general idea of what your odds are of drawing a land within those two draw steps is going to help you decide whether or not you want to mulligan a hand like that. Yeah, mana base is the biggest concern usually for players, especially for beginning players. But when you, the next step, when, when we are done with the mana base issues, we can go to the next step, next level, and then we have to think of uh, what are my chances to draw an answer for infect creature, stuff like that. And and it's it's math. I don't I don't do the math like in my head every time, but I have these rough outlines. Like how is this usually like? I I know that that the chances of me drawing a third land by turn three when I'm on a draw are good if I'm playing a deck with 22, 23 lands, which is quite usual. So I had just these like outlines that I use in my mind when I'm making mulligan decisions. And it's it's a, I know there are resources in internet, especially for the mana base concerns that that help you to count the odds. I don't use them, but I know that they are available and easily accessible. Right, and I'm actually going to include a couple links at least one or two of those in the show notes for people to check out. As I said, I also don't really know the exact percentages of things, but I I can definitely say that that kind of knowledge will help you uh, become a better player and help you mulligan more effectively. But the way that I like to mulligan is based on some of these previous con- concepts, and it's about knowing what my deck's optimal game plan is so for instance i play a lot of white weenie and uh it's a very straightforward kind of deck it's very linear and it attacks the opponent by creating a an oppressive board state with cheap creatures and then secondly i need to know how my deck interacts with the opponent and so in in some cases there's decks like uh well let's look at something like storm which is a very non-interactive deck especially in those early turns uh the storm decks can go off very early in the game so i know that i know that i need to either have something that is going to race them very quickly so for instance i will specifically look for a a one drop creature and having something like bone splitter which is going to allow me to attack for at least 3 damage uh, on turn two, and then, you know, add more creatures to the board and create the fastest clock I possibly can. So that's the first thing I would look for. Secondly, I would like to have some sort of, you know, especially games two and three, some sort of interactive sideboard component uh, there in my opening hand. So knowing those kind of things, knowing those specifics allows me to decide whether or not I can keep uh, a hand at seven, six, or five, and I can mulligan a little bit with a little bit more intelligence behind the decision. And so that's usually what I rely on more so than odds and probability. Yeah. 
usually the games two and three are very, very much uh, around the sideboard decisions what you make. You, because the decks like Storm and Infect, you need to have an answer against them in the early turns, and that's gonna affect your affect your mulliganing. Uh, about mulligans in general, some decks uh, make easier mulligans than than others. For example, if if you have a very streamlined deck and your game plan is very specific, like I I have this brew that I used to beat Gabo Chido. <laughs> we were in the finals of a of a player run event, Classic Papa, and I had this green white brew that was all about resolving turn three Blastoderm or Guardian of the Guild Pact. I didn't have any other plan. That was my 100% game plan. So the deck was built so that it was possible every third turn. And that that's something that you needed to take into account in the mulligan. You wanted to have forest, you wanted to have one mana mana dog like Lanoa Elves, and you wanted to have either Blastoderm or uh, no Blastoderm or Guardian of the Guild Pack. And a deck that is built in a way that you have only you have so very specific goal what your deck is trying to do makes your mulligan decisions easier because you can see that straight from the seven cards that you draw if I can do it or not. Yeah, and about this, I have a question for you. Sure. Uh, uh, let's let's assume that it's game two. Uh, you won the first game and you are on the draw. Your opponent keeps a seven. Oh, actually, your opponent mulligans the six. Now you you can see your seven cards. Do you think that wow? Now I have this chance to give myself the benefit of a doubt because my opponent must be must have a poor hand. Now he's down one card. So do you kind of Forgive yourself your one card. How, how do you approach that situation? Do you think that you're ahead already? Well, I typically don't put too much stock in my opponent going down to six. It is true that you being on the draw, you're obviously going to be up a card already. And, and the fact that they went to six, I usually see that as giving myself a little more of an opportunity to mulligan also. So if there's a hand where I'm a little bit on the fence uh, about whether or not I should mulligan, knowing that my opponent is going to be down a card already, I feel a little bit more comfortable going to six myself. I don't I don't get too much of an ego boost or a confidence boost yeah. knowing that I'm going to be up a card. Uh, but if the matchup is already good, it's already in my favor, uh, just based on how the decks work. I, I will feel, you know, a little better about myself. Let's say I'm playing Cloud Post and I'm playing against Mono Black Control or something and then they go to six. You know, I'll, I'll, I tend to feel pretty good in that situation, but I don't put too much stock into it personally. Yeah, I think your stance is, is quite good and correct. Uh, I know some people think that they want to keep the, they definitely want to keep the seven when their opponent moves before them. And I think that's a dangerous place to be in you are putting too much emphasis on, on the one card, which might even be something that you are not casting in six turns. <laughs> Absolutely, and that's a really good point because I think a lot of people look at mulligans as this sort of feel-bad moment. They see it as a purely a negative thing, and they don't want to detract from the number of cards they have starting out. 
And yeah. so a lot of the times, even when I play, let's say I go to five cards. This happens a lot, and I, I'm curious if this happens to you too, where your opponent will say something like, oh, man, that really sucks, or, oh, I'm so <laughs> sorry, you went to five cards. It happens even in six cards, uh, yeah, <laughs> especially if you are playing in the casual rooms. But when you're mulliganing to six and five in with constructed deck, you most likely have a reason for that, and... <sighs> You, you have some sort of uh, knowledge behind, like, what you want to do. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And that's why, for me, I don't look at mulligans as this purely negative or bad experience. I look as, at mulliganing as a tool that you have in your arsenal to help you win more games of Magic. It's something that, that will affect you, the outcome of the game a lot of the times. Like I said in the beginning, you get seven cards, and you have to... Think of them as a as a resource to win the game. Definitely. So, uh, with that being said, we've covered a lot of different aspects of mulliganing. I think right now what we should do is kind of put our money where our mouths are. This is going to be something called sneak, keep, or ditch. And this is a, a kind of mulligan game. It's a mental exercise that I actually got from the 18 podcast, and I'm not sure where it originated from. Uh, do you know where Sneep, Dip, Keep, or Ditch actually came from? I have no idea, but it must be a really old thing, because I remember back in Shadows of Alara, we had this, the guy who was teaching me to play, he he kept pulling seven cards from my deck and asked me if I if I want to keep that or mulligan down six. So it's it's an old idea, I guess, but I don't know where it's originated. Yeah, me either. But uh, for those of you that don't know what Sneak Keeper Ditch is, basically what we're going to do is we're going to take a popper deck. In this case, it's going to be a familiar storm deck, and, I, and I'll talk a little bit about what that kind of deck is in a second. Uh, but we're going to look at some opening hands from this deck, and then we're going to decide, based on our own opinions, whether or not it's a Sneak which is short for snap keep. This is the kind of hand that you you almost don't have to think about. You know it's it's one of the best hands you can have. You'll pretty much keep it in any situation, more often than not, I should say. And so it's a snap keep. It's a snap decision that you want this hand. Um, the other options are keep, which is you know a little less exciting, but completely playable hand, or ditch, which means you would prefer to mulligan to six cards from there and see what happens. And this is a 4-0 deck list that we got from a recent daily event. I'm going to go ahead and put this uh, link to this deck in the show notes. But before we even get started with uh, the game, I'll just talk a little bit about what Familiar Storm is. And hopefully, Maddie, you can also shed some light on this deck. Um, it's typically yep. an Esper-colored deck that's using cards like Nightscape and Sunscape Familiar to make blue spells very cheap to cast. And from there, it's going to build up a storm count using ways to generate a ton of mana with the bounce lands from Ravnica, with Cloud of Fairies and Snap to untap these lands. And then it's going to use a, a sort of a win condition called Temporal Fissure that bounces uh, permanence to their owner's hand. So you can bounce all your opponent's creatures, all their lands. You can bounce your own creatures and combo off all over again if you want to. Uh, why this deck is hot right now is the printing of Coastly Clicker. 
and costly flicker is exile two target artifacts, creatures, and all lands you control, then return those cards to the battlefield under your control. So you are casting this card usually for one blue mana, and you are bouncing two permanents that you control. Those might be Mnemonic Wall, that gets your Ghostly Flicker back, and Cloud of Fairies, which generates generates you unlimited mana, actually. <laughs> if, you, if you have uh, two Karoo lands in the play. So it's, uh, yeah, Ghostly Flicker is one of the reasons why this deck is doing well. Yeah, I don't doubt it. It's an incredible card. And you've been playing a bit of Familiar Storm these days, is that correct? Uh, I put this deck together like a week ago, and I have been playing something 30, 40 matches with it. It's a really fun deck. If 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 you are the kind of a player who wants to play any Storm deck, you really need to be able to concentrate because you can't take any shortcuts. You have to do all the clicking and and be really careful with what you do. So I'm gonna go ahead and and shovel up a, a first opening hand here. And this one's going to be pretty clear-cut, I think. So we've got Deep Analysis. We've got a second Deep Analysis. Duress. Azorius Chancery. And that's the uh, the blue-white Ravnica Bounce Land. We've got Nightscape Familiar. Demir Aqueduct. So we've got the blue-black Bounce Land. And the last card is Cloud of Fairies. So... Um, We've got two Deep Analysis, Duress. We've got two lands, Azorius Chancery, Demir Aqueduct. We've got Nightscape Familiar and Cloud of Fairies. So for me, just looking at this hand, the Nightscape Familiar and a Cloud of Fairies with Bounce Lands seems like it would be fairly good, especially when you can make Deep Analysis cheaper. But uh, I think the big problem here is that (laughs) we don't really have a land we can play that's going to stay in play because these bounce lands are going to have to bounce themselves back. I think this is a ditch simply because the, the lands that we have are, are borderline unplayable here. This is especially why I wanted to give this deck list for you for this exercise. Okay, so these bounce lands, while they are actually enabling this whole strategy, because without the bounce lands, you couldn't build this deck because they are the way to make infinite mana. But Six bounce lands is is kind of uh, kind of a lot because sometimes you have a hand with two bounce lands and that means you have zero lands because you can't play any lands. So for you, is this a, a sneep, a keep, or a ditch? It's a fast ditch. <laughs> okay, so it's it's a snap ditch. Basically, a no lander. You yeah. Cannot rely on drawing a land on first turn. No. Yeah, it's it's. It's a, it's a ditch. Okay, so we both agree on this one. Let's go ahead and look at another opener and see if we can and get something better. This is going to be another uh, seven-card hand. So this one, this is our second hand here. We've got 4C, which is a, a four-mana sorcery. Scry four, then draw two cards. Uh, we've got Temporal Fisher. We have three islands, Cloud of Fairies, and Azorius Chancery. So again, the, the hand is three islands and Azorius Chancery as our lands. We've got Cloud of Fairies, Temporal Fisher, and 4C. So I'm going to let you go ahead and go first here. Do you think this is a sneep, a keep, or a ditch? Since, since we're, we'll say we're on the play last game, we're, we're on the draw this game. It doesn't have any familiars 
and it only has the chance to play the other familiar from the lands that it has in in the hand. I think you just have to ditch this. There is a slight chance that you will make it with this deck, uh, depending on on the matchup. I think it's a, uh, I think it's still a ditch. Three islands is too much without any familiars. Okay. Yeah, you know, uh, this this being a three-color deck, you really have to be conscious of what you potentially draw and what you can cast. And you made a really good point that with this hand, you're only going to be able to cast the Sunscape Familiar, and that's assuming that you draw into that. So it's going to make your ability to cast, you know, the Foresee, the Cloud of Fairies, and Fisher a lot harder. You know, when I was looking at this uh, initially, I was thinking that this is – probably or possibly a keep because we can play all the spells in our hand uh, but it is a little bit slow here without like you said without that acceleration of a familiar we don't really do anything for quite a while force b does set up our yeah it sets up maybe a turn five combo off but that's Mm. too far away i i think yeah i think this deck needs to play familiar on turn two on turn three. Okay, so we're going to do another uh, opening seven here. And, okay, so this one's pretty interesting. We've got Compulsive Research, Planes, Compulsive Research number two. So we have two copies of Compulsive Research. Island, Duress, Sunscape Familiar. So that's the uh, the colorless white wall. That's the, the familiar. And we have Demir Aqueduct, which is the blue-black Karoo or Bounce Land. So once again, we've got two copies of Compulsive Research, Plains Island, Demir Aqueduct. We have a Duress, and we have Sunscape Familiar. So for me, I think looking at this, this is a keep, and it's it's possibly even a snap keep, because we have uh, all of our colors, we have an accelerator in the form of Sunscape Familiar, and we have not only two very uh, powerful dig spells, but we also have a way to interact with our opponent if he's something like a a Storm Deck, uh, an opposing Storm Deck, we have Duress, which could be very valuable depending what we're facing. Yeah, I think this is a really good hand. It's Like you said, it's maybe even a Snap Keep. Uh, Compulsive Research is... Just the perfect draw spell in this kind of hand. You can play it for two mana because you have one familiar out and you draw three cards, which is a lot for two mana. And yeah, you have to discard two cards, but since you already have all your, all your colors and enough lands, you have just enough lands to combo off. So you can actually ditch a land card and you can keep two cards if you happen to draw one land. And since you are running 22 lands, the probabilities of drawing a land is, like, really good. <laughs> so, yeah, I think this this hand is definitely a keep, maybe even a snap keep. All right, here's the last hand. Uh, and this one is another uh, really bad one. I'm just going to say this is very similar to the first hand that we drew where we only have one bounce land as our as our land base. So let's mulligan to six here. Yeah. Okay, so this one's interesting. So we've got Duress, Mold Drifter, three islands again, 
and we have Azorius Chancery, which is the blue-white bounce land here. So remember, we've just mulliganed to six cards. So we have a four-land hand with only two spells and only one castable spell. Uh, and so the decision here is, is this going to be keepable? Is it going to be better to go to five? Um, obviously, we have one spell we can cast here, which is Muldrifter. That will net us a few more cards, but we also don't get that until turn three. So those are the things we have to think about. Um, so what do you think about this hand? Again, it's three islands, Azorius Chancery, which is the blue-white Karoo land, and then we have Muldrifter and Duress. Uh, it's not a great hand. <laughs> uh, let's say if I'm going to draw... I might just keep this because I'm <laughs> I'm bad at this game and I don't have the guts to mull this one away. I don't know. It's not a good hand. It's definitely not a good hand. You know, even looking at this hand again, it, it, it's almost like you already have a five-card hand. Yeah. The duress is unplayable yeah. here. Yeah. So, and you, you don't really even know if the duress will be good. You know, against some decks, duress isn't going to hit anything. That's nothing. Yeah. So this actually does seem more like a mulligan to me. Yeah. It, now that I think more of it, I will mulligan the five. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Um, so I thought that was pretty fun, actually. I kind of like yeah. this uh, <laughs> segment. Maybe I'll, we'll continue to do this in future episodes. Who knows? So, yeah. And if anyone has, like, a crazy uh, story about how they mulligan to three or four cards in Popper and won the match, I want to know. Put it in the comments. Definitely. Yeah, I actually have a game that's on my YouTube page, which I'll, I'll post a link to, where I mulligan to three cards, and I think I was on the play, but I might have been on the draw. It was a white weenie against the mono blue Delver uh, fairies deck, and I actually ended up winning the game. So that, that was my most impressive mulligan. So uh, I think we're about ready to wrap up this mulligan segment. I just wanted to... Uh, share a few concluding thoughts. I, I just want to let people know that whenever you're mulliganing, just make sure that you take out the time to think just a little bit, just do a little bit of thinking. Uh, even if the hand at face value looks like it's a snap keep or looks like it's a mulligan, just take that extra few seconds um, to really consider all of the different factors between what your deck wants to do, what your opponent is trying to do, and what you're going to need to have the best chance to win. Sometimes I'll look at a hand and I'll think like, oh, this hand is a mulligan. And I'll, I'll put my mouse cursor right over the yes button. But at that last minute, I'll, I'll just stop myself and reassess. And sometimes you realize that, no, this hand actually is keepable. Or, no, this hand actually is not keepable. Sort of like yeah. just realize. Um, yeah. <laughs> I was just saying, just like we realized with the last last exercise that we did, yeah. we were both quite unsure what to do. And then after talking it out, we both agreed that, yeah, you, you just have to be brave and go to fight. Absolutely. So just remember that mulliganing, like most aspects of this game, is it's a process where, where it really does deserve a little bit of time for you to slow down, think it out, and, and try and make the best decision you can from there. Uh, and I have one more thing I wanted to mention. There's a really cool uh, short video on Channel Fireball that features the pro players Matt Sperling and Paul Rietzel, who's actually my favorite pro player uh, in the world. 
And so I, I really liked this. So they actually talk about mulliganing as well. And we'll, I'll include a, a link in the show notes for this. And, and one of the things they decided was that, you know, there's a lot of these tough mulligan decisions where your hand, it's completely on the fence. You can't, you, you, the decision to mulligan and the decision to keep are almost equal because there, there's uh, pros and cons to both. And it's just a very tough decision for you to make. And so what they concluded is that what you want to do to make those decisions a little easier for yourself is you just need to decide personally whether you want to be a, a player that leans on the side of mulliganing more or leans on the side of keeping more often. And so once you make that decision for yourself, when you come across those hands, you'll you'll know that, okay, I'm the type of person, and this is true for me, actually, I'm the type of person that leans on the side of mulliganing a little more often. So I will, in those instances, just opt to mulligan. And that saves you a little bit of time, saves you a little bit of stress and a little bit of mental energy. I think that's that's a good thing to do, and that's what I personally do. I think I think it works pretty well. Cool. So uh, we're gonna go ahead and take a short break, and we're gonna come back to talk about sideboarding. And uh, yeah, so stay tuned, and we'll get right to that. All right, guys, welcome back to episode 17. We just finished up the segment on mulligans. And so now we're going to move into the second half of the show, and this is going to cover sideboarding in Popper. So I think these two are both kind of related because they're both important decisions that affect the game, but they're decisions you make before the game even starts. And sideboarding is interesting because there's basically two decision trees that exist. There's the actual building of the sideboard. It's what you put into that 15 cards, and then there's the decision what you're actually going to include into your main deck uh, in games two and three versus various opponents. So why is sideboarding important? I think it's for the same reasons. It's important because it, it impacts the game, it impacts your win percentage, and it helps you make your deck flexible to tackle the, the wide, varied field or tackle the, metal, the metagame. It allows you to, to have game against various opponents. And so your win percentage is going to go up and you're going to, you're going to 3-1 and 4-0 more often based on how good of a sideboard you have. Now, I actually feel that sideboard games are more important than mainboard games. Uh, in a best of three, playing those two sideboarded games, you're at least going to have 50% of your game sideboarded. And then, you know, a lot of times you're also going to have two-thirds of your game sideboarded. So you end up playing more sideboarded games than you do with just a main board. So, Maddie, do you feel like sideboarding is important? And if so, why or why not? Uh, sideboards are definitely important. And just looking at the meta game right now, we have Storm decks in the metagame. We have cloud post decks in the metagame. So, and those are like huge chunk of the metagame. So you must take them into consideration. You must be able to win, win a, two games against those decks. And I don't think you can do that without a sideboard plan. Now that we know why sideboarding is important, let's go ahead and, and do some general tips for sideboarding. And the first thing I want to say is very similar to what I said about mulligans is that you want to always have a set plan in mind. So with sideboarding, you want to know what your plan is for a given matchup. And what I mean by this is that a lot of times people will construct a sideboard that is built of cards that are quote unquote good versus a certain deck. So let's say 
I'm playing against an artifact deck like Affinity, and so I'm going to put a bunch of Ancient Grudges in my sideboard. That is obviously, yes, Ancient Grudge is a quote-unquote good card versus them, but you also want to make sure that you're incorporating that into your game plan. So, you know, for games two and three, let's say you're a control deck, your game plan is going to be something like, well, I want to play creature control and remove a lot of my opponent's early threats in order for me to advance into that late game stage or that end game where I can have uh, the advantage going forward. So I want to use these ancient grudges to take out my opponent's early threats like Frogmite or Mirror Enforcer. Again, this is just an example. Um, and so you're going to be more likely to use ancient grudge to support that plan rather than to just use it to, let's say, nuke some of their lands early on because as a control deck that doesn't necessarily um, support the game plan that you want to have you know stone raining them isn't going to necessarily be your path to victory that makes a lot of sense like and um, one thing that I, I i always when i brew decks or, or play competitive decks i want to make sure that my mana curve is is as good after sideboard as if it was before sideboard. So I don't want to leave like empty spaces in my mana curve. I want to have a game plan where I can play stuff each turn. And like you said, the sideboard options must complement the overall strategy that I am doing. Or in some cases, you, you just need uh, definite answers for certain decks. If I'm playing a red deck, a deck that is aggressive, something like goblins, where I want to play out small creature threats, attack my opponent's life total with my board presence, and then burn them out with, uh, you know, some cheap burn spells. Again, let's say, take affinity into account. Um, most of the time, I want to bring in cards that are going to supplement that game plan. So something like Smash the Smithereens is a card I really like, because not only does it give you that shatter effect, it also damages your opponent's life total. So it's still advancing that, that same game plan rather than deviating from it uh, in some sort of way. So that's why I would play something like a Smash to Smithereens, maybe even something like Manic Vandal, which does the same thing but gives you a threat and puts it on the board. It, it's, it's still moving that original game plan forward but allowing you to uh, interact with your opponent a little more specifically. All right, great. So uh, the next thing I want to talk about is just a personal theory I have on sideboarding. And I know a lot of people don't agree with this, but uh, I just wanted to put this forth and, and let you guys do what you will with this information. But my personal theory on sideboarding is I always take out the cards that are the worst in a matchup first, and then I only board in enough from my sideboard to replace those cards. The reason I do this is to ensure that I am not boarding in too many cards uh, if my main deck is already well set up. If I already have a good affinity matchup, well, there's no reason for me to board in eight of these super affinity hoser cards if it's going to dilute the main deck I already have. And this, again, ties into mana curve. It ties into your game plan. ties into all these things we've, we've talked about before. Uh, so let's turn it over to you. Do you have any personal theories on sideboarding? Do you have any personal methods that you go about doing when you are building a sideboard or boarding in for uh, those games? Yeah, for constructed, like what you talk just right, I do that when, when I'm playing limited. <laughs> 
there I see, okay, this card is not functioning against my opponent's deck. This is my worst card. And then I look if I can bring something in. But in Constructed, I usually have uh, some idea in general about the matchup. And I, I'm thinking what the opponent is trying to achieve. What is my opponent's game plan? And how I can make his game plan worse while maintaining my own game plan. You can make easy swap where you bring in something like Kwambai Witches. And you can just swipe their board every turn. One creature at a time. Those are the easy kind of changes you can make in, in, in control decks. And it doesn't really change your game plan. Because your game plan the whole time is is controlling the board. You just have different components against different decks. It's really different from from sideboarding in in a combo deck and in a control deck. Because in a combo deck, you usually have only limited size per matchup. But in control deck, you can even uh, forget certain matchups in in your initial sixty cards. And then after sideboard, you can bring in six, seven cards in one matchup if you want. Cool. So let's go ahead and actually put this into practice. And we're going to look at two different sideboards and share some of our thoughts on how the sideboard is built, the card choices, and what these decks have available to them. We're going to look at two different archetypes and also different aspects of the color pie. So we're going to go ahead and start with an Empty the Warrens combo deck. This is a 4-0 list from, <clears throat> excuse me, from November 22nd, and the link is available here in the show notes. I'm just going to read off the sideboard uh, real quickly. It's very interesting to me because this sideboard is almost all two-ofs, and there's a single one-of in this sideboard. So uh, it's a red-blue Empty the Warrens combo deck, and the sideboard is two curfew, two deep analysis, two dispel, Two Electricery, two Flaring Pain, two Hydroblast, two Pyroblast, and one Vapor Snag. Yeah, it's really amazing sideboard. And what's funny about this one is that, uh, like like we talked just just right before this segment, that uh, combo decks like this, they only have so many slots than taken devote for sideboarding. And what I there's a couple things I like about this. First of all, I like that philosophy. He's not willing to dilute his actual combo uh, in order to, to, to bring in some sideboard cards. But he also is giving himself a, a wide variety against the field. He's playing Curfew, which is very good against uh, the Infect decks, and it's good against the, uh, the Hexproof-type decks that go all yeah. in on pumping one creature. And um, the great thing about Curfew... Well, there's a couple things. First of all, it's one mana. So this is a, a card that interacts in the early game against those early game decks. In fact, wants to win early. The Auras deck is going to get out of hand really quickly. And so Curfew is a, a, a way to combat that. But also, the Storm deck doesn't really play creatures. So this is sort of a one-sided removal spell. It doesn't target. Right, yeah, and it doesn't target. So it gets around all these vines of vast wood and all these hexproof creatures. So it, it's it's a good choice. And it also another thing is that it's a card that hits more than one matchup. So yeah. 
you're maximizing the usefulness of your sideboard space by having a card like this that's going to come in for multiple matchups. Yeah, I feel like Curfew is like a blue version of Edict Effects. From there, uh, this deck has a number of different counterspells, including Dispel, Hydroblast, and Pyroblast. I'm just going to kind of lump these and, together. Yeah, um, and this, this is where it gets interesting, because two Dispel, two Hydroblast, two Bioblast. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. What if we cut the two Dispels and add in one Hydroblast and one more Pyroblast? What are we losing? Well, you're honestly not losing a whole lot because uh, the instants that you're planning to counter are almost always going to be blue or red. Hydroplast and Pyroblast are just, they are the best sideboard cards in the format. And and they usually function just like Dispel. Yeah, I mean, there are some more rare situations where he may want to use Dispel to stop. Because uh, we have to keep in mind that this is purely, well, it, it's more often an empty the Warren's kill condition. It's a lot yeah. harder for him to win with Grape Shot. So uh, Dispel is a contingency plan against some of the sweepers like Echoing Decay, Sandstorm, and Holy Knight. If, if he didn't have any Dispels, he didn't have anything for those matchups. So, uh, And then just to wrap it up, He's got Electricery in here. This is a way for him to stop opposing Empty the Warrens. And what's great is that this is really an upgrade from Seismic Shudder because now he doesn't have to worry about sweeping his own board uh, with, with the Sweeper effect. And then just to comment on the last two cards, he's got Flaring Pain in here, which I think, as far as I can tell, it, it's very narrow. It's, it's really to stop Prismatic Strands or maybe a Fog, I guess would be the yeah. other thing. Yeah. Um, so this is another sort of reactive card. This is a way that he preempts what the opponent is going to bring in against him. And I like yeah, it. It's sideboard, it's sideboard card against sideboard card. <laughs> and then the last card in here is that Vapor Snag. And I think this is another catch-all where it deals with problematic creatures that will be boarded in against him. So something like Suture Priest, the... Clark Clan Shaman, or maybe even the uh, the Martyr of Ashes, if that is uh, at some point popular. This is just a catch-all that allows him to negate those uh, potential threats to his plan. So I, overall, I kind of like this sideboard. At first, I thought it was a little finicky, but it is pretty versatile. Okay, so we have one other deck we're going to look at here, and this is a little bit on the other side of the spectrum. This is a white weenie deck by Andre S. that was played on November 24th, also a 4-0 list. And with this sideboard, we see a lot more of three ofs and four ofs, and um, it's monocolor. So there's there's less options. Uh, you really just have to work with what is available in your color. And here we see that uh, this deck is playing four Benevolent Unicorn, three Holy Light, one Prismatic Strands, three Standard Bearer, and four Suture Priest. And the first thing that I noticed with this sideboard is that there is a lot that can be brought in against the Storm decks, maybe even too much here. Yeah, I, all the cards are pretty good against Storm decks. <laughs> yeah, essentially what it looks like is that 12 out of these 15 cards, at least from, from my count, the Unicorn, the Holy Light, the Strands, and the Suture Priest could all be brought in to combat Storm. And I think that you can make the argument that that's probably too many cards. 
Uh, if we look at his main deck, um, Journey to Nowhere is a card that can be taken out against Storm most of the time because they don't really have those creatures. Uh, also, Knight of Circe is a card he's playing in the main deck, which is very slow in general, and it's slow against Storm. Uh, not going to really be active until turn four. So uh, for a 2-2 creature, that's not really that exciting there. Um, yeah. And from there, he's going to have to take out four additional cards, maybe Squadron Hawk or something, to bring all of them. Or Icatian Javelinus. Yeah, possibly. Uh, I don't know what Andreas likes to do. I personally keep in all my one-drop creatures because I really want to attack them as soon as possible. Uh, the Javelinus doesn't really have any extra benefit, though. Yeah, uh, it's just the 1-1 one, one in the right. matchup. Exactly. Um, but this is a sideboard that's a little less, um, it's not, it's definitely not as versatile as that, as that empty the Warrens sideboard, but it does give you a lot of redundancy because you have four copies of these cards and three copies. Uh, you're going to see them more often in your opening hands. Yeah. I, I feel like this player is, is maybe <clears throat> in a, expecting a metagame with, uh, a sort of a metagame where he's favored against all the other decks, but uh, Infect and Storm, and then he's uh, putting stuff on the sideboard to battle those two decks, and maybe even uh, with the cost of giving up to uh, Cloudpost. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I just wanted to mention a couple, perhaps, suggestions for a sideboard like this. Um, one of the things that White has access to is pretty varied amount of hate for artifacts and enchantments so yeah. i i typically don't build a, a a white weenie sideboard without at least having something that'll hit those because there are a lot of problematic artifacts and enchantments for white including serrated arrows spire golem both of those can be pretty uh pretty tough to beat yeah th those are the, definitely the two major problems with white weenie and the other suggestion I, I would consider is that if if a player like this is really wanting to beat Storm, per se, uh, instead of having all of these cards in the board, it's often a, a good idea, I, I suppose, to maybe have two or three of these cards in the main. We see that he's got two strands already in the main. Uh, perhaps playing two copies of Suture Priest in the main would also be good because Suture Priest is, is good in other matchups as well. And so it, it's a hedge that allows you to have a slightly better game one. Instead of pouring in these 12 cards of hate, game two and three, maybe you can steal a game or two, you know, in game one by, by, and, and save some sideboard space at the same time. So I think we've probably gone on long enough with these deck lists. I just wanted to uh, give some very quick tips because we really haven't talked specifically about how to start building your sideboard from the ground up, from stage one to completion. And these are just going to be some basic general tips on how to do that. I think the first tip I can give you guys is that you're going to want to – don't try to reinvent the wheel from right off the bat. What you want to do is look at some similar deck lists online. Look at ones that are using the same colors as you. Maybe they're the, the same archetype that you're playing. And take some ideas from them. You'll see that in, in the Popper metagame, there are a lot of similar sideboards that are using some of the same cards simply because those are already the best cards available 
for you to be using. So you can start there. Start borrowing ideas. You might even want to start with someone's uh, exact sideboard and see how you like it. Uh, the second tip is to utilize Gatherer. Gatherer.wizards.com allows you to do very refined, specific kinds of searches where you can look for the type of effects that you actually want to have in your sideboard. If you want to find a creature with protection from black, you can look that up in Gatherer and, and you can find it. From there, you want to play test. You want to gather experience, gather data, and test against these matchups that you're trying to sideboard for. Uh, find some friends to play with you uh, or jump into daily events, tournament practice room, all very good, and make sure you're taking notes and, and really coming to some conclusive decisions on how much sideboard space you want to dedicate and what are your most effective options uh, to put in your sideboard. And that kind of goes into my last tip, which is be sure to tune your decks. Constantly look at how you can improve your board, how you can tweak your numbers, and even doing things like putting one or two sideboarded cards in your main deck is sometimes correct, and I found that that actually helps quite a bit. Um, so those would be my tips. Did you have any tips for people in terms of uh, sideboarding? No, I think <laughs> you covered it pretty well. If you ever need help with sideboarding, just remember you're not really alone. There's so many resources available to you. There's deck lists. There's message boards. You can even contact us here at the show. So I think we've done a pretty good job here of – or, you know, about as good as I can do uh, talking about mulligans and sideboarding. Did you have any concluding uh, thoughts or anything that you wanted to say about these topics? No, I think we did a pretty good job covering them, and I'm looking forward if we get any comments or questions from the listeners. Yeah, me too. So I just wanted to give a quick couple shout-outs here. I definitely want to thank you, Maddie, for being on the show. I really appreciate it. So I just want to thank you for your time, first of all. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be on. Yeah. And uh, lastly, I just want to give a shout-out to Gabo Cheeto, who is, he was a co-host of this show, and he's taking a bit of a break, but he will be back uh, at some point. In, I don't, can't really say. I don't have an exact uh, point in time, but I just want to give a big thanks to him for getting the show started and providing so many great resources. And if you want to contact the show, you can contact me personally if you'd like. I have a, a Twitter account you can follow, at DimeCollectorSC. I'm also available on YouTube. I have a YouTube account, youtube.com slash DimeCollectorSC. You can find me on MTGO at my ID is Bamboo Rush. And I'm also on MTGOacademy.com. My article series is called Dime a Dozen. You can also contact the show, Popper's Cage at gmail.com if you want to talk to us, send us any questions. And we have our blog, which is popperscage.blogspot.ca. Yeah, so, I definitely recommend that. It's a really great thing that, that he's really uh, been working on. So I, I think it's it's definitely worth checking out. Yeah, first shout-outs, to, of course, to you. Thank you for having me on. It was, it was a pleasure. And uh, it's, it's always nice to chat with you. I hope I could do it more, but it's the time zones are different. <laughs> uh, then next shout-outs to Popper the People crew, where I, I am part of the staff in the forums mainly, but sometimes in episodes. And actually, we are recording uh, episode 86 in six hours. So, yeah, it's, it's midnight now in here, and I will go to sleep. And in six hours, I will be awake for, to be in Popper the People, episode 86. 
Uh, also, shout-outs to CaseTube, uh, Cranny from In Contention Podcast. He does this Joy of Cubing podcast. I'm a huge fan because I'm such a cube fanatic. Also, shout-outs to Usman and Anthony, uh, the Third Power Podcast guys. Uh, hopefully, they will make more podcasts in the future. Uh, huge shout-outs to a guy named Chris Hugebob. He is at Hugemathon uh, in Twitter. He's the guy who you link in the Popper Skates blog post for Popper Prices. He's doing an amazing job there helping Gabo. I think like when Gabo uh, said that he's going to take a break, this guy stepped up and said, hey, you can maybe, I have this information available here. And he has a good information available about Popper card prices in Magic Gathering Online. And last but not least, shout outs to Gabo Chido. You you are doing a great job with the podcast, and hopefully we will hear more from you in the future. Fantastic. So thanks again, Maddie, and thanks to everybody listening. Uh, we will be back for episode 18, and I hope you guys enjoyed. Please contact us, but thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you guys next time. Yeah, and if you want to contact me, you can contact me in Twitter. I am at yugula underscore mp. Have a good time, and we'll see you for episode 18.